When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. summer pricks my finger and the hot sun chills me to the bone when i can't hear the song for the singer and i can't tell my pillow from a stone i will walk along by the black muddy river and sing me a song of my own i will walk along by the black muddy river and sing me a song of my own this is pod dylan the show that celebrates the work of bob dylan one song at a time proud member of the fire and water podcast network i'm your host of freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining me this week is, if you're on uh, Twitter all the time, uh, Bob Twitter, as we'll call it, uh, you're familiar with this person, big, big Bob fan, Harry Hugh. Hi, Harry. Hi, Rob. Great to be on the show. It is great to finally have you on the show. You and I have been interacting on, on Twitter a lot, and I'm always interested in your thoughts on on Bob and stuff. Now, for those of you maybe that are familiar with the song, you might say, well, that's not a Bob song. Uh, no, it is not. It is a great Grateful Dead song. So this episode is going to be a little different in that we are talking about a Bob cover of another song. Um, I To this point, I think I've only talked about one other cover that bob has done at this point i've pretty much stuck to uh his original compositions but harry wanted to talk about this uh trio of extraordinary performances uh that bob did of this song but before we get to all that uh harry i gotta ask you like how did you become a fan of bob in the first place yeah well i appreciate the question as it happens i was a fan of lucky wilbury before i was a fan of bob dylan ah right 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 which is to say i was a fan of lucky wilbury before i realized that he was bob dylan (laughs) As a kid, the the first band I was introduced to and the first band I fell in love with was the Beatles. And uh, I developed a particular fondness for George Harrison for many reasons, not the least of which being the fact that his last name is my first name, which, you know, as a child is a detail I found captivating. (laughs) So one day I was playing around, uh, rifling through some of my mother's cassette tapes, and my mom, uh, knowing my affinity for the Beatles and George, came by and pointed me toward one with a cool-looking cover and a funny-sounding name, Traveling Wilburys, Volume 1. Well, you know, you can probably film the rest from here, Rob. I put it on, and it soon became clear one of these guys is not like the others. <laughs> so, you know, something about that voice. And and mm-hmm. I, I tell you, I listen to that tape every day over and over again, the whole way through, until, until my tiny brain figured out how to fast-forward and rewind, at which point I basically started listening to Tweeter and the Monkey Man on an endless loop. And... <laughs> Uh, a couple months later, I went back to the box of cassette tapes and found Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits, Volume 2. And though I was only a kid and a pretty stupid kid at that, I'll be honest, somehow I knew <laughs> this is as good as it's going to get. <laughs> from there, uh, you could say it's been a gradual descent into madness. Uh, although I will say it, it wasn't until the Internet, it wasn't until the Internet became a force in my life that I was really able to plumb the depths of my Dylan obsession. I, I suspect this is a case with a lot of people that it's the it's the Internet that allowed me to fulfill my destiny of becoming a, a dyed in the wool Dylan fan. <laughs> That's that is what it is there for. Now, what what year did that take place? The Woolberries Volume One excavation? Oh, let's see. I probably, probably would have been nine or ten. So we're talking late 90s and then i became like i was saying like a true blue dyed in the wool dylan fan probably 13 14 
Okay. All right. Because, I mean, I said, that's I've said on the show before, that's literally the same exact experience that I had, was I got the first Woolberries record, and I'm like, wow, I like this whole record, but with these, these you know, Dirty World, Tweeter and the Monkey Man, congrats, these, these are my favorite ones. Uh, this Dylan guy, okay. And then, then I was off to the races at that point. So it's amazing. Yeah, well, the, the Woolberries was a gateway drug for so many people. Oh, absolutely. And I think the, the contrast, looking back, the contrast between the, the kind of mellifluous tones of Roy Orbison and, and <laughs> George, like Dylan's voice cast among that that group in particular, like you couldn't find a more uh, a, a more uh, a sharp contrast. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. These beautiful Roy Orbison tones. And then you've got this <laughs> the hard nasal line of, of Bob Dylan. But I think that's what makes that album so great. You've got that you've got that contrast. It makes it so, makes it so special. So, well, anyway, that's that's fantastic. Have you ever seen him live? Oh, yeah. A couple of times. The uh, the best uh, the best Dylan concert I saw uh, live was uh, in 2013, the American Rama American Rama uh show at the Molson Amphitheater where he played 12 Gates of the City uh, for the wow. first and only time. First and only time. And it's one of the rare uh, Dylan sing-alongs, which is uh, always a sight to see in person. Yeah. Oh, wow. Jeez. That, yeah, that would be extraordinary. Uh, that, that's... I, admired, I admired his boldness, I got to say, in leading a sing-along uh, of a song that maybe 1% of the people in the audience knew. Yeah, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know the lyrics to it. That's a, that's remarkable. Wow, that's really cool. I mean, it, well, it's it's a sort of a perfect segue because, of course, you've seen Bob live and you are familiar with his, um, let's say, idiosyncrasies as a live performer. Uh, sure. And that's that's what we're going to address here in this this cover of a Black Muddy River that he did. Now, there's he has only done this song three times. Uh, according to BobDylan.com. And again, we're still using that as essentially the the ultimate reference point here. And he performed it first, April 6th, 1992 in Melbourne, Australia. Then again, April 30th, 1992 in Eugene, Oregon. And then finally, May 17th, 1992 in Los Angeles. And that is it. That is the only time he's done this song. Um, but this this it's that original version, that first one that struck you so powerfully. And so why don't you explain to people why you wanted to talk about it? Because it's it's not even just that it's a live cover of a song. It's got some even for a Dylan lover, it's got some things you probably need to work through a little bit to really appreciate yeah. it. Well, as you said, he played it three times. And the the first time he knew none of the words outside of the, the title <laughs> phrase. By the second time he knew some of them, and by the third time he knew all of them. But here's the thing. Of the three performances, the first, the first is far and away my favorite. Number two and number three are fine. But I honestly, I, I feel a little sheepish admitting it, but I honestly feel that first performance uh, in all its ragged glory is one of the greatest things Dylan has done. He 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 staggers his way through the whole number. It, it's it's abundantly clear, as you were saying, that he he has not even the slightest familiarity with the words. He manages to occasionally hit upon the refrain, but spends spends the verses riding the mumble train straight into the haze but <laughs> I, i'll be damned though if he if he let something as trivial as that stop him from discovering what the song had to offer he 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 knew what he was up against that he was going in blind and he went for it anyway he he, he felt his way along in the dark up there and he, he he marched through the unknown without hesitation and somehow he made it through there is something to uh, the confidence you have to have to get, go on stage in front of a microphone in front of uh, however many hundreds, thousands of paying people and not know the words to the song that you're about to sing. I mean, uh, if I if I could have one percent of that confidence, I feel like I would accomplish a lot in my life. Uh, but uh, uh, 
Bob can just do it. And, and, and so I would say you explain this to me, you, 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 cause we talked earlier about some other songs and you were like, no, nah, I really want to talk about this. And so I was like, okay. And I had not heard these. I had not heard any of these versions. And so you, you sent me the link is the, there was one on YouTube and you know, I, like you, I'm familiar with, with, uh, working my way through versions of songs where Bob only kind of half knows the words or just putting up with kind of, again, the way he does certain things, which I think a lot of other people would just be throw their hands up and say, I don't, what is this? I don't want to hear. That said, um, I like uh, this song a lot. Uh, I think the words are very, uh, something that Dylan would, I think, uh, certainly um, appreciate. They're, they're by Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter, which of course were his longtime friends. And uh, Hunter was uh, often uh, his collaborator. But I listened to all three versions and I'm like, I'm with you. I actually like that first version better, even though he really only ever gets to like Black Muddy River every so often. Yeah, well, to pick up on your point there about uh, uh, kind of the audacity of it all, uh, I think that's part of why I'm drawn to the, the first performance in particular. It's the fact that Dylan had the intestinal fortitude to stand on a stage in front of thousands of strangers and sing a song without the benefit of knowing the words. I mean, who does this? How how did he arrive at this decision? Was it a dare? Did he pass by a muddy river on the way to the venue? Like, like whatever the case may be, when the moment of truth arrived, he had to know he didn't know the words and, and he didn't care. Like nobody else would do something this brazen or this foolish. And, and consequently, nobody else could have created something this beautiful. And, and just to touch on something else you were saying, I, I, we should mention that it's not the only mumbled Dylan performance that's noteworthy. I think you would agree with me here that, for instance, I'm not there. Oh, right. And, that's the immediately one I think yeah. that I think back to. Yeah, absolutely. And to fall in love with you. They're, they're both right, right. terrific in similar ways, but neither of those was played to a crowd. For me, what separates this performance is the audience. For someone who's legendarily shy, Dylan's willingness to be so raw and, and vulnerable on stage is, is striking. And um, yeah, th- th- this actually reminds me, like I was talking to somebody about Dylan's habit of leaving great songs off his albums. And I know this is a subject that's come up several times on the podcast. Yeah. And anyway, this person mentioned uh, to fall in love with you and, and, and said that it's a shame Dylan never finished the song because it had such obvious pot- uh, potential. And I think there's, there's truth to that. But I think it's also true that part of the reason a song like that is great is because it's unfinished, because it allows you to uh, be present at the moment of creation. You can hear Dylan searching for something, and it's the possibility of, of what he might find that's so exciting. You know, you're gripped by the search by the, the process of discovery. Um, uh, this is the case with a lot of like, a, a lot of Dylan's song fragments. And with, with any work of art, when it's in that kind of primitive state, it suggests a limitless world uh, that's inevitably shrunk when it's completed. So a song like To Fall in Love With You, by virtue of never having been completed, has not been sullied by compromise. And to bring this around to <laughs> the song we're discussing, right, Black Muddy River, Dylan's played it third t- three times, uh, by the third time, he has it word perfect. And what's the end result? The end result is stagnation. You can, you can, you know, almost see his thought process like, where's the fun in this? Now that I've got it down, there's nowhere to go. And, and he's <laughs> never brought it back. <laughs> that's, that, I would say I, that's entirely accurate. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of what we talked about when Laura Tenchert and I talked about Caribbean Wind about how there is no final version of Caribbean Wind. And so therefore you approach the song in a different way because you're not, you don't have that 
you don't have the version to compare all the other ones to. So any of them are the version in your mind. And that, that, that makes you think of it in a different way. And I think that's accurate. It's a, I mean, this song is a guy, I, at least how I took it. This is a man ruminating uh, at the end of his life. Uh, the words go on. He says, with the last bolt of sunshine hits the mountain and the stars start to splatter in the sky. When the moon hits the south, south, south excuse me. Southwest horizon with the scream of an eagle on the fly. I will walk alone by the Black Muddy River and listen to the ripples as they moan. I will walk alone by the Black Muddy River and sing me a song of my own. Black Muddy River, roll on forever. I don't care how deep or wide if you've got another side. Roll Muddy River, roll Muddy River, Black Muddy River, roll. And it's to me, it's it's someone... Uh, you know, maybe literally at like the the gates of heaven. Uh, maybe not. Maybe it's it's not quite so that so much th- that far. But it, I could see why Dylan would like it. You know, I get, this feels like a something that he would kind of write in 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 some ways. And I don't mean that. I don't mean to damn that with faint praise. It's like, oh, it's great because it sounds like something Bob would write. But it's I could see why he would like it. But that first version that you talk about, it has that. I mean, of course, with the enormous help of the band, it it captures this sort of melancholy that I think the song is trying to get to that the other two versions don't quite hit upon. And I think there is something to that when you're talking about the, the limitless possibilities. And it's like, yeah, it's it's interesting to hear him kind of just meander his way through it, kind of like the narrator in the song. The guy in the song is just sort of wandering. And that's kind of what it sounds like in that version that that uh, that he did in Australia. Yeah, well, I think you're you're exactly right that part of the reason he gets on with Robert Hunter generally is because stylistically they're very similar. Right. Uh, I I feel like Dylan's written a lot of songs uh, uh, that are very much alike Black Muddy River. A song I'd compare it to uh, thematically is Solid Rock, for instance, hmm. which. It's, it's sort of, you know, a river of rock, sort of natural constants that people look to to provide refuge and, and, and comfort in times of change. Like this is a kind of a through line through a lot of Dylan's work, this idea that, you know, he's looking for certain adamantine principles, like grounding forces that kind of will limit the uh, unrest we experience from one moment to the next. And um, so so. Uh, Actually, I wrote down one uh, a quote he gave in 2009, uh, speaking with uh, Douglas Brinkley of Rolling Stone about uh, Robert Hunter, where Dylan basically acknowledges their um, similarities. He says, Hunter is an old buddy. In an interview with Douglas Brinkley in 2009, Dylan said, Hunter is an old buddy. We could probably write 100 songs together if we thought it was important or the right reasons were there. He's got a way with words, and I do too, he says in all humility. We both wrote... <laughs> Uh, we both write a different type of song than what passes today for songwriting. And then he adds, I think we'll be writing a couple of other songs, too, for some off-Broadway off play. I don't know whatever became of that. But hmm. but I think that speaks to uh, uh, your point about uh, they are very much coming at the same philosophy uh, philosophy from from a similar angle, I would uh, I would say. Yeah. And it, this is I mean, Bob loves songs about singers. 
about the, the you know the the person singing the song is telling you that they're singing a song, uh, whether it's "Lay Down Your Weary Tune" or even "Mr. Tambourine Man." It he's that is and and that's they mentioned something like that and there's a line like that in uh, "Hard Rain's Gonna Fall" or even "Sylvia," which of course was co-written by Robert Hunter about going down to the valley and sing my song. His that's a, a recurring motif in both Hunter's work and Dylan's work. And so this song, I said, I could see why it would really appeal to him. And the the song ends with this is when it seems like the night will last forever. And there's nothing left to do but count the years when the strings of my heart begin to sever and the stones fall from my eyes instead of tears. I will walk alone by the Black Money River and dream me a dream of my own. I will walk alone by the Black Money River and sing me a song of my own. Sing me a song of my own. And one of the things I'm sort of amazed by in terms of how stuff gets in front of Bob at any given point is that this is from the Grateful Dead album In the Dark, Mm -hmm. uh, which came out in 1987. And yet these performances are 1992. So, you know, it's like it wasn't like he, the album just came out and he heard it. He was like, oh, I could cover this. Five years later, he's covering it. And it's just you got to wonder about the mystery of creation. But what was it about five years later that made him want to do it? I mean, did I, what, that was before Jerry Garcia had passed away. So it wasn't that. And Robert Hunter is still around. So I'm just sort of wondering, how did it get into his brain in 1992 that he decided, oh, now's the time to do it? Well, it certainly sounds like it was a spur of the moment decision. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) I mean, I don't know whether he noticed a stain on the the wall of the concert hall that kind of resembled the Black Muddy River. I I mean, I have no idea what... The band's got to know it, right? The band has to know it on some level? Yeah, I mean, your guess is as good as mine in that respect. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it said, and the fact that he did it the three times, that's, I think, I mean, guys, we'll never know. But I think that's very instructive what you said, that you feel like by the time he got to the third one, he kind of had it. And then it was like, well, all right, I've sort of, I've I've wandered this this particular muddy river and I've done it now. So I'm just going to, all right, I'm going to drop it. And there it goes. And he you know, never goes back to it. It's kind of, you know, it's amazing. Just these little, this little you know, trilogy of performances all within a very short span of time. Uh, and then never again. And it's fun. It's sort of funny. Um, I was looking at the um, the the thread on expectingrain.com about this, where you posted the link, and it's funny to see people's reactions because you were very vociferous in your praise about it, and and you would, <laughs> but you admit you admit that like you can't argue as to why you like it exactly. Oh my god. Oh my you god. You know. No. Here's the deal, Rob. Here's the deal. The reason I love this performance is that more than any other Dylan performance, it brings my head into conflict with my heart. I cannot truthfully (laughs) tell you that I think this is the best performance of Dylan's career, or even one of the best. I cannot tell you that I think it's anything special at all. But as is often the case in my life, I feel like my thoughts, my opinions don't come close to capturing how I feel. And when I'm listening to this performance, I can't help it that I feel as though it's the greatest thing I've ever heard. You know, I, 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 I mean, I've never been big on lists. You know, a lot of Dylan, you know, rankings and so forth are very big in the Dylan community. I find it very difficult to rank my favorite songs, say, or albums, anything like that, mostly because when I'm listening to music, I exist in one of two states. I'm either liking what I'm hearing or I'm not liking what I'm hearing. Right. I don't, right, I don't right. get, I don't get much deeper than that. When I'm listening to a song, it's very seldom that I pause to think, yeah, this is good, but it's not as good as fill in the blank. You know, right. I essentially, I have two buckets labeled good and bad into which I've mentally deposited every song <laughs> I've ever heard. And this is the rare song, the rare performance that doesn't fit <laughs> into either bucket. I can't say whether it's good or bad. I don't know. I don't fundamentally, I don't understand what's going on with this performance and that's part of the reason i revisit it so often 
And and I will admit, I will admit every time, every, everyone I've, and it's been, it's been, it's been rare that I've done this, but every time I've played this recording for someone who wasn't a Dylan super fan, they've, they've said the same thing. <laughs> you, know, you know, I don't get it. Like, uh, you know, if you say so, but the thing is on what basis can I claim to tell them they're mistaken? Like right. after all, in the end, we're talking about, uh, a 27-year-old grainy Australian audience recording of a man in his early 50s fumpering around for, for five <laughs> minutes. Are they insane or am I insane? Like, I'm not so delusional as to deny that to an impartial observer. <laughs> Certainly the former would seem more likely. Right, right. Um, and I love that. I think like a couple comments down on the thread, there was somebody who popped in and he's like, you Dylan fans are nuts. Like, it just, no. it just <laughs> like, I just threw his hands up. He's like, you people are all insane. Well, it is. It really is like Dylan is speaking in a in a in a code that only I and a handful of other crazies can decipher, and right. and in that way, it it defines the nature of my of my Dylan fandom. Like I know there's no rational basis on on upon which I should love this performance, and yet I do, and that's the best thing about it. Knowing that it 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 activates a part of myself that is beyond the reach of rationality, like a part of myself that I cannot hope to understand. I feel the performance is incredible and I'm unable to defend it objectively at the same time. I'm trying to bring my head into harmony with my heart and I can't manage it. And I, I feel like it is moments like that, the experience that you're having with this, I, I feel like that is, again, not going to presume to speak for the man, obviously, but I feel like it's moments like that, which is why he keeps doing this because th that's been asked. Why do you keep doing this? You know, he's, we know he's a wealthy man. Uh, just the song royalties alone. Uh, and, and, you know, he could, if he wanted to, uh, be like a lot of other performers at, at his stature and just play arenas, you know, once, uh, four months out of every two, two years and make it a huge thing where the, you know, the, to get the seats or $2,500, he could do that if he wanted to, but he chooses not to, he chooses at, for a man who is 78 years old. Uh, of course, by the time uh, this, uh, by the time everybody hears this episode, actually he'll be seventy nine. Um, you know, he's a seventy nine year old man, and he is out there pushing himself, doing what seventy to eighty to ninety concerts a year, which is an extraordinary physical display for a seventy nine year old man. I'm I'm tired just thinking about it, and I'm thirty years younger than Bob. And but I feel like it's moments like this that you're just talking about. That's why he does it is to strike upon something that is beyond words in a lot of ways because you're right it i listened to it i liked it a lot now i didn't it didn't touch me the way it, it hit you but nevertheless <laughs> but but i mean i've had my own experiences there too where there's something in there and i go but you know i just love the way he sings that even though by any standard it's not good you know but i like it anyway and I, there's something to that and like i said there's to me, there's something so beautiful about this man who, again, was in his 50s at this point, singing to this crowd in Australia on the other side of the world, trying to communicate something and not even using the words of the song to do it. There's just something so beautiful about that. And it's very Dylan-esque. And it's the kind of thing that keeps nut jobs like you and I coming back, <laughs> you know, for forever. Well, I do think we're, we're, we're the same in that what initially attracted us to Dylan was the voice. Yes. And 
you know, critics have long written about this kind of mysterious, impenetrable quality, which is at the core of of Dylan's uh, genius. And of course, they're right. But where I think a lot of them err is is in where they place this quality, which is, say, being writers themselves. They tend to believe that the critical factor is the way Dylan selects and deploys language, his use of elusive imagery, how, you know, since the beginning, he's had this ability to piece together disparate forces to create these cohesive, seemingly closed off works, which which at the same time uh, allow are open enough to allow for endless interpretation. You know, that's not what's going on here. I mean, uh, that that's a part of the story, no doubt. But 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 then you hear a performance like this and you realize the Dylan mystery runs much deeper. There's no elusive imagery on offer here, like right. more than right. impenetrable or indecipherable. There are sizable stretches in this song which are unintelligible. Yet these stretches do not detract from the whole in the least. Like I would argue they enhance it. This is this is Mr. Nobel Prize in literature drilling down as deep as ever without the aid of discernible language. Like, talk, <laughs> talk about a mystery. I mean, it is the most improbable of triumphs. And, and it speaks to why Dylan is so essential, because as experiences go, there is nothing more exhilarating than being taken on a journey by a guy who has no idea where he's going. <laughs> <laughs> who nevertheless is utterly convinced he'll end up where he needs to be. And he's so convinced that you can't help but feel the same way. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I agree with all of that. Yeah. That's you're, you're putting into words something that I don't think I've quite been able to, to do myself. And I, which is like, wow, this is awesome that we did the show. Cause now I'm hearing, yeah, there is something to that. And there is a, there's a kind of confidence. I feel that way. I don't want to get too far off topic, but I feel a little bit like that in, in certain uh, movies. There are movies that I see where I feel like, okay, the director of this movie knows where he or she wants to go. Uh, now, of course, it's different. A movie is, as you're seeing it, is a finished piece. It's not live, obviously. But nevertheless, there are movies where I feel like, okay, wow, this, okay, this, this, this story is, I don't know where it's going, but I feel like the people that made it know where it's going. And there's something incredibly uh, rewarding for me, at least about that. Uh, and there's an exuberance to it that is very, very, uh, to me, uh, captivating to watch. And then there are other movies where I'm like, ah, they, these people had no idea what they were doing. They're just slapping this together to get to 97 minutes. But there's, there's some, and, and I, you know, I feel like there's the comparisons there to Dylan to great filmmakers, but yeah, there's something. And to think that he does this, how many times in every show? How many songs does he sing? Like 18 songs, you know, something like that. And maybe for some of the songs where he knows the words backwards and forwards and everybody knows the words backwards and forwards, you're not going to get that discovery. It's more like, oh, he's singing Blowing in the Wind again. That's nice. I like Blowing in the Wind. But for this, when he decides to really take a page and go way out there, again, it's 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 pretty remarkable. I am so glad that I've heard these performances thanks to you because I had no clue about them at all. And I feel enriched as a Dylan fan that I'm aware of them. Yeah. What you're saying about filmmaking, there's a quote, a, a, a Fellini quote uh, that I love where he said that, uh, yeah, I don't believe that rational understanding is an essential element in the reception of any work of art. Uh, he was talking about film. So, you know, either a film has something to say to you or it doesn't. If, if it does, no explanation is necessary. And if it doesn't, no explanation will do. No explanation right. will make you moved by it if you're not moved by it. Yep. And and if you are, you know, no explanation. An explanation is superfluous. 
Yeah, it's it's funny. I've had people ask me, uh, you know, sort of kidding, you know, like, well, what are you going to do when you're out of Dylan songs? Well, first of all, there's 500 Dylan <laughs> songs. I've only done 100 of them, so I still got 400 more episodes to do. And that's presuming that he never writes another song uh, from this point on, which we know is probably not the case, hopefully, knock on wood. But on top of that, I say, well, good Lord, if I, if I somehow am fortunate enough to produce 500 episodes of Pot Dylan, uh, I guess the last one will be Joey. Uh, then I go, <laughs> then I move on to the covers. I mean, they, you know, like, I mean, that's, that, again, it's the knock about, you know, people say, oh, he's, you know, oh, he's a great, uh, he's a great songwriter. I don't like his voice. He's a great songwriter. I, I can name, off the top of my head, a dozen great covers of other people's songs by this man. So to me, he is a master interpreter of other songs. And that's only the voice at that point, because you have nothing else to point to and say, well, he wrote, you know, whatever. I mean, he, uh, there's a, I make these Dylan uh, morning commute mixes. And for a couple of weeks, I had his cover of Things We Said Today by Paul McCartney uh, on there because I love it. I'm like this, I love this version. And yet you could not pick a different approach to that song. Uh, from Paul McCartney's than to the sandpaper voice of Bob Dylan. But, I mean, I can't – like, I I try and focus on the original material, of course, for this show because that's just sort of the, 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 the main thrust of it. But I'm glad that I got to finally talk about another cover because I love his covers. I mean, I wish that huh. they would put together, like, a live album of, like, just the co- – like, you know, Sony put that or a bootleg series. Just grab – go through all the, the concerts, the never-ending tour, and pick – 50 great covers. That would be a hell of a set. Yeah, I was surprised. I, I love his cover of uh, Things We Said Today, too. And I was surprised that it was sort of poo-pooed when it came out. And it was, well, you know, you know, it's it's not as smooth as as uh, as it should exactly. be. Exactly. Well, my, but what I would say to that is if you want that, we already have the Beatles recording. Right, yeah, exactly. I mean, why, why are we going to, you know, what's the point of making a duplication of of something that's already been been cast in gold. We don't, you know, better better to, uh, uh, you know, put it, uh, you know, better Bob Dylan do Bob Dylan than do his Paul McCartney imitation. Yeah, yeah. We're not getting rid of the Paul McCartney version. You can go buy that one and listen to it all you want. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I said, I, I wish that more of this material was available. I mean, obviously, if it's put on a bootleg series, it's only going to be bought by diehard fans anyway. So you're not really introducing anybody new. To it, but nevertheless, uh, this is—I really think this is a really very, very interesting cover. Would I put it on my list of the great Bob Dylan covers? Maybe not. Oh, Rob, Rob. Maybe not. Maybe not. But but I but I am totally that sold on me. your. I, I'm sorry. I am totally, but I'm totally sold on your argument, though. That is what I'm saying. Like I hear what you're saying, and I completely appreciate what you're saying. I don't necessarily think I'm there yet, but I nevertheless understand what you're saying, and I appreciate it. Well, it's, it's it's nice to have somebody to uh, to make my case to, other than uh, you know strangers on the bus each morning. <laughs> so, well, uh, <laughs> I think we need to end that there. So, uh, so all right, Harry, is there anything else you want to say about uh, about Black Muddy River before we sign off? But yeah, let me just add one final thing, which is that although as we've mentioned, Dylan hasn't played Black Muddy River since '92. In in '95, he issued a statement in response to the passing of Jerry Garcia in which uh, he wrote in part, uh, Jerry Garcia is the very spirit personified of whatever is Muddy River country at its core uh-huh. and streams up into the spheres. So, so it, it, you know, there he is uh, referring back to that phrase. So clearly there's something in the image 
of that black muddy river that that resonates in the you know uh, inner recesses of Dylan's mind. Yeah, that's that's a great quote. I remember that quote at the time. I remember I funny. I remember where I was when Jerry Garcia died. I'm it's it's a I'm not a particular big Grateful Dead fan, but I I have that lodge in my memory. I remember exactly where I was where it where the news came out, and then I remembered reading about Bob's statement. So that's uh, that's extraordinary. Well. Anyway, Harry, um, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, I will admit, when you first said you didn't want to talk about a Dylan original, you wanted to talk about this very obscure cover, I was like, oh, okay, like a little intimidated. But then I listened to it, and I I don't know, this this has been a blast. I really enjoyed talking to you, and so thank you for coming on. Well, Rob, roll on forever. You are the very spirit personified of whatever is Muddy River Country (laughs) at its core, and you scream up into the spheres, buddy. (laughs) Thank you very much. So where can people find you on the internet? At Harry Hugh on Twitter, and that's about it. All right. Good enough. We'll have that link in the show notes. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Of course, if you want to subscribe to the show, uh, you can go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, I think it's called now, or Stitcher. Or you can go to the website, listen to it there, which is firewaterpodcast.com. You, unfortunately, cannot buy these performances anywhere. Uh, You can find them. You can find the the one in Melbourne on YouTube. Um, And I would suggest you go check it out. Any Dylan fan who hasn't heard it yet, give it a listen. But, of course, you can buy the Grateful Dead version, which is really very beautiful. Uh, and there's a link to that in the show notes as well. And of course, we are always talking Bob over on Twitter, which is at Bob, a uh, pod, excuse me, underscore Dylan. So thanks everybody for listening and we will see you later. Bye. Yeah.